Bibles, please open with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you are welcome to grab the black Bibles in the pew in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that black Bible home with you and call it your own. If you're not used to reading the Bible, Matthew is at the very beginning of the New Testament, and chapters are the big numbers, verses are the little numbers. <coughs> I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the theme of this morning's service has been shot through with debt. It's what we've been singing about, it's what we've been praying about, and now it's what we will see in the sermon. It's not difficult to understand the concept of debt. Simply put, debt is when you owe someone something. Your indebtedness to someone doesn't have to be financial. You could owe someone a debt of gratitude or a debt of service, but typically the debt that we refer to is financial. And the principle is the same regardless of wherever you find the debt, we are in the red. Most Americans are in some form of debt. Americans are in way over their heads. Everyone who has a mortgage is in debt and will be in debt for quite some time. But even if you were to exclude mortgages, the average American has about $38,000 worth of debt. Debt seems to be an inescapable reality for our modern American financial system. It just feels like it's built into the very fabric of our lives. Enter Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey is a radio host, author, speaker, financial advisor, and all-around likable guy. Millions of people the world over have been helped by Dave's common-sense approach to handling Money And one of the main focuses of Dave's career is helping people get out of debt. And his solutions aren't particularly eloquent or inventive. It usually involves the common sense ideas of, get this, not spending money that you don't have, living within your means, and then developing a plan to pay off any debt that you currently have, and then not get back into it again in the future with discipline. There's nothing special there, but you'd be surprised at how uncommon common sense is, particularly when it comes to money. Now, Dave says that a person in debt should do three things in order to uh, experience what he calls financial freedom. He says you should, one, analyze your debt, two, tackle your debt, and then three, continue to live debt-free. He says that almost anyone who has a job can experience financial freedom with these three easy steps. But what if the debt that we owe isn't financial? Can we still tackle our debt with three easy steps if our debt is, for example, of a spiritual nature? When I was 21, I found out that someone had opened up credit cards in my name under my social security number and had racked up thousands of dollars of debt in my name that I didn't know about. So when I got the letter in the mail that told me that this was the final warning, you can imagine that I was pretty shocked. In the same way, many of us, most of us, are shocked, surprised, maybe even offended 
when we find out that we are in spiritual debt to God. According to Jesus, one of the main barriers between us and a right relationship with God is the spiritual debt that we owe God because of our sin. And this spiritual debt is the concept, the reality that Jesus has in mind this morning when he teaches his disciples in his school of prayer to pray the words, forgive us our debt. So keep that in mind as I read aloud and you follow along with me the words of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word, and it is completely sufficient for our lives. Amen. In the introduction, I gave you a three-step plan for tackling debt, and I would like to, and I admit it's a little corny, use that for the three points of this morning's sermon. So, beginning with point number one, and Will, brother, can you please bring me that water? Thank you. Beginning with point number one, analyze debt. Analyze debt. It's not uncommon for someone to get a credit card at the age of 18. The reason why? You got to build credit, apparently. That's the wisdom. That's how it goes. You get a credit card to build credit. Although there are exceptions, there are 18-year-olds who are wise and disciplined and self-control. You can imagine that the vast majority of the time that you give an 18-year-old a piece of plastic that says you can use this like money, but you won't have to pay it back immediately, it is bound to go bad. Additionally, many young Americans take out loans to buy their automobiles. And not only do they take out loans to buy their automobiles, they don't get good interest rates on loans because they're young and don't have work history, so they get high interest loans. And then not only do they buy cars with loans, they buy new cars with loans, which is just very bad financial juju, but they do it. And then you add to that the fact that student loans are just ubiquitous in our day. It's just the assumed thing to do. If you don't have enough money to pay for college, you go and you get a loan to pay for college, of course, with interest. And then you consider medical debt. Without insurance, you could very easily rack up tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. But even if you do have insurance, the copay may be enough to put you significantly deeper into debt than you already were. Credit card, automobile, medical, student loans. Many Americans are swimming. They're just completely over their heads with debt. Now, at some point, we may look up and realize that things have just gotten completely out of control. When that happens, you have two groups of people. One group of people say, yeah, you know what, I'll just deal with it tomorrow. You know, I'm just going to live for today and I'm just going to kind of put it off and hope that it goes away. But the other group of people, which I hope as Christians we tend to be these kinds of people, we realize that's, that's not a good way to be a steward of what God has given us for the glory of his name. And so we decide that we can't keep living this way. And so we begin to plan to do better and to get out of debt. Now, this usually involves sitting down with 
some uh, informal financial advisor like a friend, a family member, a pastor, and we just sit down and we write out all of our debt. And we take a long, hard look at the numbers. It can be tough, but it's absolutely necessary because you can't begin to get to step two of tackling your debt until you handle step one of recognizing the extent of your debt and the nature of your debt. Well, the same thing is true of spiritual debt. Before we can begin to tackle our spiritual debt, we have to understand the nature, the complexity, the extent of our spiritual debt to God. Now, analyzing our financial debt isn't that difficult. You know, we just sit down with a piece of paper and we take our bills and we say, okay, I owe this amount, amount of money to this person and this amount of money to this person. You can rank it from least to most, however you want to do it. But believe it or not, it's actually easier to analyze your spiritual debt. You see, when you owe financial debt, you could owe it to any number of different people, banks, family members, institutions like schools, and the, the amounts can vary significantly, $10, hundreds of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But when it comes to analyzing our spiritual debt, it's just much more simple. The debt that you owe is to God alone. And what you owe him is your eternity. This point is made clear in the scripture that our sister Jackie just read for us earlier in the service. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable of a servant who was indebted to his master, the king. This is a picture of you and me and our debt, our spiritual debt to God. Now, the servant in Jesus' parable, uh, excuse me, the servant, yeah, the servant in Jesus' parable owed his master 10,000 talents. Let me try that again. 10,000 talents. There, that's what we're looking for. Yeah. No, there's a reason why there's not an audible gasp, because we don't really know what 10,000 talents means. For that reason, the NIV translates it like this. When the king began to settle, a man was brought to him who owed him 10,000 bags of gold. Okay, all right, that's a little, right? But we still don't really, uh, last time you saw a bag of gold, you don't know the price of gold, you don't know how much it's worth, right? Okay, what's another way to say this? Adjusting for inflation, doing the math as well as I do do it. When the king began to settle, a man was brought to him who owed him $6 billion. Yeah, there we go. The point here is that the servant owed a master a debt that he could never, ever, ever repay. The man owed so much money that as the parable continues, Jesus says that the master was going to auction off the man and his entire family, not to pay off the debt, because that wouldn't pay it off, just as a punishment. This was common in the ancient world. And we read, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, this may sound a bit extreme to you, as it should, but you should know that the reality of our spiritual debt and the consequences of our indebtedness to God are actually significantly more extreme than what we read in this parable. 
You see, this parable of financial debt is a picture of our spiritual debt. And spiritually, what we owe God is not money, but justice. And the penalty for our sins. You see, God is a good God. He is a just God. And as a just God, he is a good judge who does not let sin go unpunished. You may not like to think about that when it comes to you, but you love that idea when it comes to somebody else. Give Hitler what he deserves. Give the rapist, the child molester what he deserves. Give that murderer, that thief what they deserve. But the reality is, is that what you deserve is justice as well. And as generally acknowledged to be the case, a satisfaction of justice involves a punishment that is in keeping with the offense committed, right? So the old saying goes, the punishment should fit the crime. And the bad news of the gospel is that our crime against God is severe. And I think that that's putting it lightly. It's worse than any of us could imagine. We have committed the worst kind of sin. According to the gospel, we have committed high treason against our king. We have rebelled against our sovereign. We have failed to love God in the way that we ought to in light of who he is and what he has done to love us. We do not treasure him as we should. Rather, we reject him and all of his perfections. And this is not just some of us, to be clear. This isn't just those guys out there. Scripture could not be any clearer. There is no one righteous, no not one. All like sheep have gone astray. Now, if God were a mere man like us, maybe even if he was the most perfect man that ever lived, the best man that was ever born to a woman on the face of this planet of earth, maybe then it would be sufficient to give our physical lives as a payment for our sins. But the reality is, is that God is not a man. And our crimes are in a completely different category. The punishment for our sins must be so severe because of who God is. One aspect of God is his infinity, his eternality. God isn't just love, he's infinitely loving. He's not just just, he's infinitely just. He's not just holy, he's infinitely holy and good and beautiful and true. And every other good thing that you could ever possibly think of, he is infinitely that. He is that to the superlative, to the nth degree. And because our crimes are against an infinite God, the punishment for our crimes must be eternal. The debt that we incur for our sins against an eternal God is an eternal debt. Therefore, we cannot merely sell our lives, these bodies of flesh, to pay the price for our sins. No, we owe God our eternal souls. And this is why a place called hell exists. Hell is the place where God's perfect justice reigns. And hell... The wrath of God abides permanently on those who have rejected God and who have indebted themselves to God spiritually. In the old world, in Western Europe, 
there existed something known as a debtor's prison. They, they had them in America as well, all over the world actually, but the worst of them were in Western Europe, in the Middle Ages. And this was a place where if you owed a debt, you would be locked up until your debt could be paid, either through suffering or with cold, hard cash. And like regular prison, the conditions in a debtor's prison were miserable. Starvation, cold, heat, disease, violence. But the debtor's prison of the Middle Ages does not compare at all to the debtor's prison known as hell. For starters, the debtor's prison of the Middle Ages had a way out. Even if you died in prison, you could find your escape. But the debtor's prison known as hell knows of no escape for a man who has not repented of his sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. In the book of Revelation, we are told that in hell, those who are indebted to the justice of God will burn and that the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Do you see that language of eternality there? That's all in light of who God is and the nature of our offense against him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I understand that this conversation about hell probably seems archaic to you. Perhaps it seems cruel. Maybe even as a Christian, you might be sitting here right now and as I talk about these things, you begin to cringe. Maybe you begin to seize up. Your stomach begins to knot. I think that that is the right response to this idea of hell. I think God intends for this concept of hell to scare us, to make us uncomfortable, to make us nervous. I understand why you would inherently and, in, and just kind of intuitively want to reject this idea because it's meant to be terrifying. In God's grace, he tells us about the place where he punishes our sin debt so that we might flee from that place and turn to Christ for salvation. What I do find interesting, however, is that we never seem to react with the same kind of revulsion when we think about our sin. When we think about hell, we get nervous and clammy and anxious and we feel the weight of it. But when we think about sin, how do we feel? Does our sin against the God of the universe, the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who is infinitely perfect in every way, does our sin against him weigh on us in any way at all? Does it make us nervous or uncomfortable? Does it cause our stomach to knot up in balls? No, it doesn't. I think we have such a strong revulsion to hell because we have such a light view of God. If we rightly understood the nature of our offense to God, we would understand the debt that we owe God, and hell wouldn't seem cruel. It would seem like the most natural response that a good and righteous judge could conjure up in order to pay for these infinite offenses. But instead, we presume the position of judge for ourselves. And in our fallen nature and with our broken reason, we put ourselves in the place of God and we decide what is just and right and fair. We fail to understand the debt that we owe God because we do not know God. Point number two, we must begin to tackle our debt. 
So once we've begun to grasp the nature and the extent of our debt, we move on to step two. In terms of financial debt, this is a logical progression. Okay, it's not that hard. Once you've got all of your debts written out, you just decide to start paying. Different philosophies here. Some people say you pay the one that you owe the most interest on first. Dave Ramsey has a different approach. He says pay off the smallest debt first. That way you get a win under your belt. You get the feeling of success. Oh, I know what it feels like to pay off debt. I'm this much closer to being free. Now I'm going to pay off the next largest debt and so on and so on. And he calls this the snowball. Spiritually speaking, however, this step, step number two, is impossible. Of course, not everyone believes that. As a matter of fact, trying to pay off our own sin debt to God is usually our very first instinct. As a matter of fact, it's the string that tends to bind together all bad religion. Whether people have an explicit doctrine of sin and justice and hell and wrath, they kind of intuitively know that they've rebelled against God and that they need to try to do something to fix it. And most of us think ourselves perfectly capable of fixing our debt problem with God. We think that we can do enough good things to erase all of the bad things that we've done. We think that we can go from the red to the black in the ledger of God's justice by doing things like altruism, random acts of kindness, prayer, church attendance, scripture memorization, public service of various kinds. But that's not the way that this works. That's not how forgiveness can be accomplished. First of all, the only chance that this approach, that this approach to God has must assume something that is not true. Namely, it assumes the fact that you will not continue to sin. It assumes that you will, even from this day forward, never contribute to your sin debt at all. And that's just not possible. As Christians, we should certainly sin less as time progresses. But the idea that you will never continue to sin is just foolishness. It's, it's unbiblical. It's not true. This approach of trying to pay off your debt with God by doing good works, it... It's like a man trying to pay off his credit card while he just keeps using it to pay his other bills. Now, even if I were to say that we could do this, that we could stop sinning flat out and never add another red cent to our debt with God from this day forward, we would still not be able to atone for the sins that we previously committed. The very first sin that we ever commit against an eternally righteous God puts us eternally in the debt of God's justice. We can spend every second of every day of the rest of our lives trying to do all the good and right and true things that we think we should do in this world, feeding the poor, caring for orphans, praying, reading scripture, and it would never be enough to undo even one of the sins that we have committed against our God. When Amber and I lived in South America, uh, I used to ride my motorcycle out to the villages to go preach and that got pretty dangerous after a while for men with guns or potholes driving at night, accidents, buffaloes charging at me. So someone very kindly bought us a truck to drive out to these villages. And we had to hide our truck when I wasn't out in the village because the odds of somebody stealing it were uh, about 100%. Okay? So we were in the jungle 
we didn't really have a parking garage to go put at. We, our, our house, you know, we were the only house in the neighborhood that had floors. So the odds of us having an attached garage were also slim. So what we decided to do was to dig out a hole in maybe like the 60-foot hill that was next to our house that bumped right up against our house. We were going to dig out a space there big enough to park our truck and then build a gate around it, a wooden gate. I don't know how effective it would have been, but that was the plan. <coughs> we were going to try to protect the truck. Me and three other men who were much better at digging than I was, we spent a week trying to dig out that hole. And it was the worst week of my life. It was terrible. It seemed like no matter how much digging and pickaxing I did, just the dirt didn't move. The hole never got any bigger. I remember at one point spending an hour just digging in the same place, filling up buckets, putting them in wheelbarrows, moving them and coming back and feeling not, not two square inches of dirt had been moved from that place. And in that moment, I thought, man... This is what it must feel like to pay off our sin debt to God with good works. We strive and we grind and we labor and we sweat. We just don't get anywhere at all. Sometimes in life people can catch a break. I know some people who have had some massive debts paid off for them. I know a guy who had all of his student loan debts paid off for him by uh, a member of his congregation. Don't worry, I'm not dropping a hint. I don't have student loan debts. But this actually happened. I also know another guy whose uh, mom paid some of his debts off so that he could go to seminary. And wouldn't it be great if someone, a friend, a family member, could pay off our spiritual debt to God? Wouldn't that be fantastic? only problem with that is that scripture tells us that it's not possible. And I'll tell you why. Another man cannot pay off your debt to God because every other man that has ever been born to a woman is also spiritually in debt to God. All sin, all fall short of the glory of God. All men are born with the sin nature and all men fall in that sin nature. You cannot pay off that debt with more debt. I know people who have tried to pay off one credit card with another credit card. And I know that they might have felt like they were accomplishing something. But the fact is, nothing changed. They were still deeply in debt. The psalmist says this exact point in Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. He says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for life is costly. And no payment is ever enough. So then, what hope is there for sinful man to get out of debt with God? I love this part of the sermon. If you've been in a, a solid Bible preaching, Bible believing church, you've probably heard this kind of climax in the sermon 10,000 times, and I've preached it 10,000 times, and it just never gets old. Because this is the part of the sermon where I get to tell you the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has made a way for your debts to be canceled. If you felt like, man, you have been laying it on thick for the last 30 minutes trying to make me feel bad and beat down and broken about my sin, you're right. You're absolutely right. I've been trying to hold your head 
under the water of guilt so that when I tell you about this beautiful grace of God that's offered to you in Jesus Christ, you might receive it with joy. Jesus came as fully God and fully man. And as a man, because he was fully God, he never sinned. He never rebelled. He never incurred any spiritual debt with his father's justice. He lived a perfect life of righteousness and obedience to his father's will. And in heaven, he has a perfect credit score. And in the greatest act of love that this world has ever known, Jesus made the payment for our sins. But not only did he make the payment for our sins, not only did he reach in his wallet and pay the price, he took the debt that we owed onto his own shoulders. And he paid off the debt out of the spiritual abundance of his wealth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 2 says it this way. It says that he has forgiven us all of our trespasses. How has he done it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, how can a man cancel a debt that is owed with all of its legal demands? How is that possible? It's not right. It's not just. It's not fair. Paul continues. It says, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Jesus paid it all. He satisfied the demands of his perfect justice and he satisfied our debts. But you should know that this, this debt cancellation, it does not belong to all men. It only belongs to those who will turn from their sins and who will trust in Christ for this great salvation. In the parable from Matthew 18 that we read earlier together, after the servant realizes uh, how deep his, deep his debt to the master is, he falls on his knees and he quite foolishly cries out like this, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. You remember how much he owed, right? This, it's, it's nonsense, it, it can't be true. But the king is gracious. The text tells us that the king takes pity on the man. And then we read this. The master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. Just like Adam and Eve could not pay the price for their own sin, they couldn't cover up their own nakedness with fig leaves, you and I cannot cover up our own debt. It's not possible. Not only is it not possible, but God won't allow it. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to try to cover it up. You don't have to pay it off. It's been paid on your behalf. But here's the thing about debt cancellation. Remember this when you hear talking heads on TV talking about this in our government. Someone, somewhere, must pay the price for every penny of canceled debt. Someone must absorb that cost. And in this parable, the king is the one who forgives the debt and the king is the one who absorbs the cost of that debt. And the gospel tells us that in our case, Jesus, the sinless one, 
he absorbed the cost that we should have paid. And this is the glory of the gospel of free grace. We don't work our way out of debt because we can't. We simply receive Christ's work on our behalf. His blood is the payment for our sins. So have you received that? And if not, why not? There, there's nothing attached, there are no stipulations. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, doesn't matter if you're young or old, rich or poor, smart or educated, if you're a member of this church or not a member of this church. Doesn't matter how many times you've messed up, it doesn't matter how big your debt is. Jesus paid it all. So take and receive that offer. Point number three, continue to live debt-free. Wouldn't it be the most beautiful ending of the story if I told you that God's free grace of debt cancellation didn't have any strings attached whatsoever? Well, I kind of just told you that. Well, what I was referring to was on the front end. On the front end, there are no stipulations. There are no strings attached. If you're a sinner... You cry out to God and he saves you and pays off your debt and that's it. There's nothing you can do or contribute or work for. But on the back end, there are certain stipulations to this debt cancellation. Stipulations like now you have to live a holy life. You have to fight against your sin. Other things along those lines. But one of the main things that I want to focus on today from our text is the stipulation that you who have been forgiven must now forgive others how can we the people of God who have received so freely from the hand of God this grace turn around and withhold this grace from other people who have sinned against us this is why Paul tells the Ephesians that they must forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you do you see it this is what God has done for you in the gospel vertical And now this is what you must do to one another, horizontal. In light of who God is and what he's done for you in Christ, this is how you must treat one another in the church. Jesus' teaching on prayer assumes that God's people understand this reality. Look at the language that he uses. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus assumes that we, the forgiven people of God, are the forgiving people of God. If you call yourself a Christian, but you hang on to grudges, you harbor bitterness and resentment, you refuse to forgive, you try to make people earn their way back into their good graces, you may not be a Christian at all. I'm not saying that you're not, I'm saying that you may not be. Because people who have freely received grace from the hand of God are people who freely give that grace out. It's obviously a learning process. That's why Paul has to teach the Ephesians this reality. He tells them, hey, you've been forgiven. You better make sure that you give forgiveness out. If nothing else, this reality should call you to consider your lives, examine your hearts, speculate on your relationships, and see where you may be holding a grudge, some form of bitterness, anger, envy towards somebody. And then let it go. Forgiveness is when we refuse to hold people's sins against them and we let it go. 
Now, I know that there may be some people this morning who have been sinned against in some ways that maybe I would never even begin to understand. You may be sitting there saying, Sean, preacher man, that, that sounds great. That sounds fantastic. But you don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. I can't forgive him. I won't forgive her. If I do, it means that they're going to get away scot-free. And I understand. I've had my own struggles with forgiveness. In Matthew 18, the parable continues. The same man that was forgiven of his debts by his master. It says that this forgiven man went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii is about the equivalent of 20 weeks worth of wages. Not that severe. And it says that when he saw him, he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. His fellow servant responded, have patience with me, I will pay you. This is the same thing that the man said to the king. The text says that he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay his debt. Eventually the king heard about it and the master calls him to his presence and this is what he says. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. I don't think that this parable is teaching that we can be unforgiven of the debt that has been canceled. I don't think that's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is to show you what you look like when you refuse to forgive after you have been forgiven. You look ridiculous. But if you're struggling with forgiveness because of some of the grievous things that you've experienced and some of the terrible ways that people have sinned against you, I want to I want to offer you something that I think may be helpful for you as you try to wrestle and be obedient to Jesus' command to forgive others. The gospel tells us that God is just. And because God is just, he has promised to deal with sin, all sin, without exception. Every sin that's ever been committed against you, against me, against God, against everybody. And he has promised to do it in one of two ways. He either already paid for it on the cross or he will deal with it in hell. What that means is that you don't have to hold on to that bitterness. You don't have to hold on to that anger. You're free to let it go. The God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who saved you, he is a good judge and he knows what has happened in your life. He knows what that person has done to you. And even if that person never repents, even if that person never says I'm sorry, you are free to release them from the penalty of that sin because that penalty is not yours to pay. God will one day bring his justice on their shoulders. This is the kind of forgiveness that should be put on prime display in the life of the church. We are a people who have been brought together not by common social interests, but by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That is what unites a bunch of people who should not be in this room together on a Sunday morning. 
And since we have been so freely forgiven, we should forgive one another, particularly in this body. That's what our church, half of what our church covenant is about. And whenever we do love one another and forgive one another in this way, we are showing the world a picture of what the gospel looks like. In closing, I remember that uh, about seven years ago, I started listening to Dave Ramsey's podcast. I just wanted to know more about how to handle money. I didn't know anything. I was a poor kid. I grew up very dirt poor, and then as soon as I got a little bit of money that the army gave me, I went out and bought two 12s and an amp. Not, not a good investment. So I wanted to do better moving into the future. <coughs> I really enjoyed Dave's easy tone, his common sense, his down-to-earth language. He didn't use, you know, complicated lingo. I still don't know what a bear market is. But uh, one of the cringiest corniest parts of the show for me was when the guests of the show would come on and do a debt-free scream. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but somebody who's in debt, Russell's cringing, he's afraid I'm actually going to fully reenact it, maybe, hang tight. Either a person or a couple or a family that's been tremendously in debt, but has used Dave's system, his plan, his advice to get out of debt, they come forward and they want to shout, and they, they do. They go, we're debt free. Ah! I used to have to turn it off, you know. It was just so cringy. It was like watching an episode of The Office. I can't watch Michael embarrass himself like that. But eventually, I came to really enjoy it. I embraced the corniness. And I'll tell you why. These were people who had worked very long and hard to pay off their debt, and they were finally free. And you know what they did when they were finally free? They wanted to go tell people about it. They wanted to shout it to the world. They wanted to tell anybody who would listen, not only that they were free, but that you, you out there, the listener, you can be free from your debt as well. I think this should be our response as the people of God. This is what God has called us to in the Great Commission. Our efforts of evangelism are all surrounded with this concept, we are called to go out and do our own little debt-free screams. We go out and tell the world that we were in debt to our sin and that we were under the wrath of God, but he sent his son to save us. Except for our debt-free screams should be even louder and more enthusiastic because we didn't have to live frugal lifestyles and work really hard for years to try to pay off our debt. Our debt was paid off for us by free, for free. And so we go out and tell the world, you too can be freely forgiven of your debt no strings attached. We tell the world that our debts have been nailed to the cross in the name of Jesus. With that in mind, I'd like to welcome our sister Maggie Fox up to the pulpit. She will share her testimony of grace and do her own little debt-free scream as she prepares to go into baptism this morning. Here you go, sister. Good morning, everyone. Um, I wanted to thank y'all for being here this morning for my baptism. <coughs> um, I'm going to go off a little script this morning because I see so many visitors here this morning. And I just want you to know that it was in God's will for y'all to be here today. And I wanted to introduce my father, Rob Fox. <laughs> I wanted to thank my church family and my many friends. 
because this is a very important um, event in my life. I would like to proclaim that this is not about me, but how powerful God is to have opened my eyes and delivered me from despair. This moment, as is every other moment, all about him and remembering how holy he is. I will, um, my parents raised me in a Christian household. We went to church many Sundays when I was a child. I specifically remember when I was in middle school, we began to attend uh, Cornerstone Church of God regularly. That summer, I went to a church camp where I was baptized with many other of my friends. As I look back now, I honestly didn't have a relationship with Christ. All I knew was the atmosphere and the reputation that Christians are supposed to have. Fast forward to my later teen years, when I still professed that I was a Christian, but I had no real purpose in life. My main priorities were a man, money, and my image. For many years, I struggled with sex, drug addiction, incarceration, vanity, and failed suicide attempts. I was actively disobedient to God with little to no remorse for my abominations. I wasn't saved until I was at work smoking a cigarette in deceit at work when God waited on my heart that I could either be of God or I could be of this world. I said to myself that I don't want to be of this world. It is sickened by sin, lust, hate, and perverse. I wanted to be of God and have a sold-out, no-doubt relationship with Him. Many weeks later, I began to attend Sixth Avenue Church of God. That sermon was over Malachi 3, 13 through 18, and I remember being so drawn in and my attention was completely on the Word. It began a yearning deep down in my soul to know more and more of the Bible and who God was. That following Wednesday, I enjoyed the Bible study and the participation as well as the people. I was welcomed with open arms and loved from the very moment I stepped my foot in the door. Oh, I lost my place. Over the next few months, I was reassured by God that this is where I was meant to be according to his perfect plan. As I am a member here, I am passionate about spreading God's message of hope for the whole world. And that message is that Christ lived died and conquered the grave to atone for our sins, bridging the gap between God, us and God by grace. Thank, Thank you. Sister. So real quick, I want to show the members of this church that, oh, you got it. Go ahead. Thank you. you got it. Mm. I want to show you the statement of faith and church covenant that we have as a church body. If you're a visitor, this is kind of insider baseball talk. The statement of faith is our understanding of the gospel and all of the most important aspects of the Christian faith, uh, and our church covenant is how we agree to live in light of that. And Maggie has signed both of these in agreement to enter into a covenant with us to faithfully protect and promote the gospel and to live it out in obedience to the glory of Jesus' name. We're going to go and get ready to be baptized. Grant is going to lead you in a song while we do. sing together, Jesus paid it all.
Let us rise together and celebrate as we continue to 